Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. It's not uncommon for surgeons to think about taking a break at various points in their career, but for many of us, it may seem quite daunting to think about how to make that actually happen. Dr. Paul Duffy is an orthopedic surgeon at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary, Alberta. He gave some fantastic grand rounds for the Department of Surgery about his experience taking a sabbatical. In this episode, we asked him to share his advice with us and his thoughts about taking a break. A quick reminder to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in every week. If you like what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes, and we'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or on Twitter at CanJSurge. To start us off in a, in a general way, for some of the listeners who may not know you as well as we do, uh, you're a, prayer, uh, a proud Maritimer for sure. Tell us about where you grew up and your training pathway and how you ended up way out here in the West. Well, thanks, Chad. It's a it's a pleasure to be invited, and uh, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm from out east. You know, for some odd reason that I can't explain, Newfoundland is not a maritime province. It's one of the Atlantic provinces. It's one of the things every Newfoundlander will tell you for some reason. So I'm from Newfoundland. Um, I grew up in a small town near St. John's. I uh, finished high school there. I went off and did general studies at Memorial University. And then I went um, from university. I did this overseas program, Canada World Youth, and I ended up in a, working on a farm in Peru. Um, it was an exchange program with Ontario. And through that, it sparked an interest in international development. And then, you know, like many things in life, lots of little decisions lead you in a certain way. And I ended up at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, doing a degree in third world developmental economics. And in that experience, I was lucky enough to go to Ecuador and do a thesis year in economic development in Ecuador. Um, and then finished that degree and kind of found myself at a, at a loss of what to do. I never grew up, you know, with a goal to be a physician. There was no physicians in my family. There's no medical history. I don't have any relatives ahead of me that were physicians. Um, but Two things kind of struck me. Once, when I was in Ecuador, my brother, who also went through a similar path and ended up, who's, he's an anesthetist uh, in Ottawa and the first uh, physician in our family, he came to Ecuador to visit me. And he had more of an impact in the two weeks that he came to visit with ideas and a skill set than I had uh, in a much longer time. So that certainly pushed me in a certain way. And I can remember specifically in the 
graduation at Trent University, the Chancellor, because it was a liberal arts university, it was, an, it was a uh, liberal arts degree. And the Chancellor said, I remember his words exactly, he said, although you may have not learned a skill, you've learned to think, which will develop and blah, blah, blah. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that he's absolutely right. I haven't learned a skill. I need to learn a skill. And that's when the, that's probably one of the first times that I thought about medical school and, uh, and, and going that path. And from there, the stars aligned. Memorial University at the time changed their admission requirements that you didn't need uh, any sciences to get in. You just needed a degree. So with an arts degree, I applied to medical school and got in. And that's how it started. That's so neat that you did a bunch of work and, and studying in Ecuador. I, I didn't actually know that about you. What was that experience like and how do you think that shaped you and impacted you? Um, it, you know, it sort of gave me more of a world view. Um, it um, pushed where I ended up in medicine and, you know, some of the overseas missions and things that I've done since I've finished orthopedics in my fellowship training. Um, and I think it gave me a better appreciation of different paths in life. And uh, because I was, I wasn't clearly on that medicine path from, from an early academic career, you know, that, that it evolved over time. So how did you end up in Calgary of all places? It, it's been uh, clearly quite the journey. Yeah. Well, you know, after medical school, then, you know, where was I going to go next? And I went the orthopedic route. And um, I can remember the first time I thought of orthopedics in Newfoundland at the time when I went to medical school, most of the nephrologists were Irish. They're all from Ireland. And we had a fairly tough uh, um, Irish nephrologist, Pat Parfrey. He was a coach of the Irish uh, rugby team. And he came in to give a, a lecture on acid-based physiology. And he stood in front of the room and he said, you know, none of you people are smart enough to understand this, but I have to teach it anyway. So here goes. So I, I put down my pencil and thought, what subspecialties can I do that don't require acid-based physiology? And orthopedics popped up. <laughs> that was the first time I'd actually given it a thought. So that's the route I went. I did my orthopedic training in St. John's. Um, and like a lot of Newfoundlanders, I had no intention of ever leaving Newfoundland. So I finished and there was no job. So I went to Halifax and I did a fellowship in arthroplasty and trauma with Ross Leighton. And I never, ever imagined myself as an academic or at an academic center or a researcher or uh, part of the teaching program. Um, but Ross lit that fire in me and I owe a lot to Ross Leighton. He taught me a lot. After I finished Halifax, there was still no job, so I went off to New Zealand and I did a locum and I worked in the North Island for a little while and traveled around. Then I went to Scotland and did another fellowship, purely just biding time till a job came up in Newfoundland. Nothing came up. Um, I was in contact with Rick Buckley, who helped me set up a locum in Calgary. I came to Calgary and worked uh, as a trauma surgeon, went away and did another fellowship in London, England, in pelvic and acetabular trauma. And then from there, I came back to Calgary, worked again as a locum surgeon that eventually turned into a job. And then my five-year plan to stay in Calgary, you know, has continued till today. And here I am. We, we previously interviewed Andrew Fury for the podcast about Team Broken Earth. Uh, and, and clearly, some of your early experiences, maybe living in Ecuador, has shaped some of that passion. But how did you get involved in Team Broken Earth? 
Um, myself and Andrew were residents together in, in orthopedics in Newfoundland. I was a few years ahead of Andrew, but we were, were close friends and we still are close friends. Uh, Andrew did his orthopedic trauma fellowship at uh, Baltimore Shock Trauma, and he was back in Newfoundland as an orthopedic trauma surgeon when the earthquake hit quite, hit Haiti. January 12, 2010, 250,000 people died in the earthquake. And he was one of the first responders with a group from Baltimore that went down. And uh, an experience has certainly impacted Andrew's life. He he caught on to the uh, to the tapped into the charitable culture of Newfoundland and and put together um, small surgical teams to go to Haiti to help and to teach. And it took off like wildfire. A lot of people wanted to get involved. Um, I was home from Calgary to Newfoundland on a, on a medical hockey tournament of all other things. And in a hockey dressing room, we got talking about, uh, could we expand this to Calgary? And I brought it to Calgary. And as, as Chad Ball knows well, because he was on our first mission, um, I set up a mission to Calgary and in the, from Calgary. And in the first year, we had three teams go. We had a team from the Foothills, from the South Hospital, and from the Peter Lougheed. Um And there was a ton of interest, and there still is. Um, so that's that's kind of how it all took off from there. So surgical teams um, from different hospitals go down and we teach and do as many cases and help as much as we can within the time that we're there. You've continued to do this work um, with the group in, in Calgary and not just in Haiti. You've been to many other places. What does what goes into creating and leading a mission like that? Like, Walk me through a little bit about the kind of planning and preparation that goes into um, taking a mission and a group of, of surgeons and nurses and, and all the, the rest of it um, to a place like Guatemala, for example. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting experience because it's, it's tough. The infrastructure is a struggle. The facilities are a struggle. The travel is a struggle. Parts of it are miserable. But it is, it is oddly refreshing to do these kinds of missions because you know it's easy in our day-to-day grind here in calgary or wherever you are in canada as a surgeon to forget why we do what we do that you get caught up in the struggles of healthcare and dealing with administration and or time and call schedules and finances and research and teaching and it's easy to forget that we're healthcare professionals because we take care of people and we have a skill set that's useful and that people need. And you go on these missions and, you know, you get to do what, what you love to do. So you show up and you make the best of the situation you have and you teach as much as you can. You help as many people as you can in the short time that you're there. Um, you know, that's, that's the crux of, of why we go. That's the crux of, of the, the need for it. Setting it up, you know, any leader, any good leader knows that uh, a leader is, is, is effective if you surround yourself by like-minded, competent people. And certainly that's what I've done for our medical missions uh, to Guatemala and Haiti, that not one person can't organize all this. There's a lot of people that chip in and help. And I think we generally underestimate people, but when you give people 
task. I think we, we can be surprised at how much people can rise to the occasion and help out. So I'm surrounded by a lot of people that do a lot of great work to help this stuff happen in Calgary and in, in Broken Earth and Newfoundland too. There's a, it's a great organization that um, organizes these trips. We talked about this a bit with Dr. Fury as well, but how do you see your legacy or um, sort of the long-term impact of the work that you do? And, and how do you kind of try to build a bit of a base so that when the mission finishes that the, the work can continue and that uh, the impact of that mission goes on beyond your physical presence in that place? Yeah, I think you need a realistic expectation of what you're trying to achieve. We're not going to change the healthcare system in Guatemala or in Haiti or in Bangladesh. You're not, you're, it is not a national, um, change that we're making. There's lots of naysayers, uh, you know, there's issues of medical tourism and all, and all that. And I get all the, the individuals that you help when you're there, it's life changing what you can do for people. It's on an individual level. And I don't think you should, that should be discounted. That individual treatment means an awful lot. Uh, there's also lots of other spin-offs and certainly for a legacy and for this to have an impacting, uh, a long impact, it's education. You have to educate locally and that's a, a tenant of broken earth is to help educate locally. So there's some sustainability and projects going forward. Also gives locals that you work with, uh, the local health organizations, the local physicians, um, some reprieve. It gives them a sense that somebody cares, that someone is coming uh, for for no financial benefit or prestige benefit. No one's looking for a pat on the back. That people care to come and help as much as they can. But the legacy of all this has to be education. And we've had a Haitian fellow that's come here to Calgary and worked with us, and he's still back in Port-au-Prince right now working hard, and we contact him quite a bit. Um, you go to some of these national meetings and... Uh, there's uh, Haitian and Guatemalan surgeons that we meet. There's those connections that are made. I routinely get uh, WhatsApp messages from surgeons in Guatemala with questions on cases, and I help as best I can, knowing there are limitations of resources and um, personnel. So it's it's those connections um, that are helpful, and I think the long-term legacy is education. But these missions, I think everyone who go, goes on these, you get more than you give. I think the benefits that people that come back from these missions and how they see the world, how they see their job, how they interact with their colleagues because they've been on these type missions does a lot for your home hospital and your home um, treatment of patients. And, and I think that's an extremely important part of these as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Paul. I, I think when you say you, you get more than you give, that's that's always the case. And we're all very lucky to be able to engage in those endeavors through folks like you and Andrew and, and a bunch of others. So I always thank you for that. If, if we switch gears a little bit and maybe swing back to my initial comments about uh, the sabbatical that you and your family took, I was wondering if you could frame that and, and introduce that to our listeners as to exactly uh, what you guys did and, and where you went and over how long. Sure, yeah. Yeah, a few years ago, back in 2016, I took three months off from my trauma practice here in Calgary uh, with my wife and two children at the time, age 10 and 8. Uh, we took a three-month break from work, a sabbatical if you want to call it, and we... We went around the world. 
we left Calgary. We went uh, via Vancouver, via Tokyo, to Thailand, to Bangkok, to Koh Phi Phi, to Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai, to um, Kuala Lumpur. And from there, we went to Turkey, to Istanbul, down Ephesus, along the coast, went to Cappadocia, to Marmaris, and we went across to the Greek islands. And then from there, we went to Rome, to Ancona, across to Croatia. We went from, you know, we did the Dalmatian Islands and split down to Dubrovnik, made our way up to Venice, went through Europe. We then ended up in Barcelona, went over to Morocco, hiked and spent a few weeks in Morocco. Uh, and then from there to London, and then you know, the highlight of the trip back to Newfoundland to visit mom, <laughs> and then back to Calgary. Yeah, you, you definitely have to stop and visit mom after that. There's there's no <laughs> doubt, no doubt about it. Um, yeah, that's an amazing trip. T t tell me about, or tell us about uh, why. What, what what led you, what were the factors that went into that, that uh, pretty brave and, and very cool decision? You know, it's funny because the why of that trip has raised all kinds of discussion. And there's no mystery behind it. The, the idea that we would do a big backpacking trip with our children was something that me and my wife had spoken about before we even had kids. That it was just part of our life plan that we always thought it would be a good idea. And once it got spoken about, it was kind of thing that you know, we had to do it. We would have felt like we'd failed to fulfill a promise to each other. So the the when portion of it was when the kids were the right age. And for us, that was age 10 and 8. Maybe that would have been better at 11 and 9. But, you know, I think that's soft. Um, the why is just because you only get one ride. Because it's something that we love to travel. Um, I love my family. Um, we love sharing experiences together. It certainly made us uh, a better family, you know, we're a good family to start with, but it, we still uh, talk about this trip and it's changed our relationship with each other for the better. Not that there was any issues before, but uh, uh, the why was simply that it was just part of our plan. Oh, that's amazing. There, there's so many things that, that we want to ask you about uh, specifically, but let, let, let's start with the work component of it as a surgical podcast. So what were the mechanics of that sabbatical? How did you convince your partners to help you out? Um, you know, as a, as a trauma orthopod, obviously your job is reasonably modular. I think it's fair to say. So how, how did you make the work side of it um, function well? Sure. Well, you know, my scenario, um, my logistics of my job uh, made it feasible. And by that, I mean that I'm a fee-for-service uh, academic trauma surgeon that the majority of the work I do is in a, a daily trauma room. Um, I do arthroplasty a couple of elective days a month. Uh, I have elective clinics. I do research. I do some medical legal work. But, you know, I've got supportive colleagues that um, we, can, we can distribute call uh, and OR time, commiserate with the group that the group were willing uh, to support me taking three months off um, because it's it's a fee-for-service. So uh, this wasn't a paid sabbatical. It wasn't I paid into a program where I took three months off. I simply just stopped working for three months. 
Yeah, it's amazing to have that support. You know, it doesn't surprise me given how awesome your your partners are. Yeah, um, what you know, yeah, very very much so. One of the things you talked about uh, amongst many that that I, I've thought a lot about since since your grand rounds was that you you, you sort of outlined an experience where you know as as you go through, it took you a certain amount of time to essentially wind down, and then you got to the point where you seem to be so relaxed and enjoying the experience so much in real time that when somebody would ask you what you did, it, you were sort of forgetful that you were, you were an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, t- tell that story because that, that was great. Sure. Yeah. You know, just to back up a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it speaks to the culture of surgery, this, this trip. So this raised a lot of eyebrows. On, you're, you're doing what? You're taking three months off. What's wrong? The whole, the, the first impression from most people is that I was taking three months off because there was a problem. Someone's sick. Yeah, an issue. There, there was a problem. Either I was burnt out, I had a drug dependency, or I was getting divorced, or there was something that I had to run away and fix. And that simply wasn't the case. We were just taking three months off. But but it's the culture that we live in. That for a surgeon at the, in, the, in the busiest part of their career to take three months away is not something that happens. You know, if you think of your own life, and I think most people as a surgeon, when was the last time you had three months off in your life? Probably never. Probably never. You get summers off in high school. That's not three months. You yeah. go to university. You go from term to term to term. You go to your job, sabbatical, medical school, engineering, whatever. Three months is not something we ever take off um, and do nothing. Just enjoy yourself and spend uh, spend time with with people that you're closest to. Um, so, you know, some people take 10 day vacations, some people take two week vacations. And, uh, it was a new experience for me to have three months away because, you know, you, you go on vacation and if breakfast is taken too long after you sit and dabble for a while, you start getting antsy. You go on Mex- go to Mexico and sit by the pool. And most of us think it's a, a, a great vacation, but most surgeons will sit in that lounge chair for probably 40 minutes till you're up and wandering around and looking for something to do. So it's our personality to be busy. And, you know, it took me three, four weeks before breakfast could turn into five games of crazy eights and then just hanging out with the family before I got rid of that sense of I should be doing something different or I should be doing something that's productive, not just, you know, quotes, wasting time. And it crossing that threshold to where you truly relax was a fairly positive experience for me. And I told you this experience. I was, we were sailing in Croatia and we sailed all day. We pulled into one of the Dalmatian islands. I think it was Brock or Lavar and another boat pulls up next to us and you crack a pint and you hand it to the guy next to you and you're chatting back and forth. And, you know, he said, so what do you do? And I was like, what do you mean I do? We just, uh, we just sailed from, uh, from the last time. He's like, no, what do you do for a living? And it, it took me, like, you know, five, ten seconds to kind of think, just what do I do? That it, it wasn't at the forefront of our mind. And it was, it, it may seem like nothing, but it just changed, you know, the, how you're seeing the world. Because we define ourselves, a lot of us as surgeons, we define ourselves as surgeons. And we need to define ourselves greater than that. And to be able to step away from it and see yourself outside of that definition kind of is fairly introspective. And uh, it gives you a very healthy um, look at yourself uh, to see, you know, where you're going and where you came from. 
Uh, that's an amazing story. What, you know, you guys were gone for three months, as, as you mentioned. What, what's the right length of time to try and do that? And I realize that's going to vary from experience to experience and person to person. But wh what's your sense of that, of that longitudinal component? You know, we talked about this. And the reason I took three months is because uh, privileging is three months. If you're away, at least here it is in Alberta, if you're away for more than three months, you need to reapply for privileges. If you're away for under three months, it's just like you went away for the weekend, as long as somebody is covering your patients and your pager and all the rest. So three months, it also, the kids were 10 and eight, so taking them out of school, we left the day they finished school in June, and we got back in September. Um, so they didn't miss that much school. At the time, one of my concerns was that it was too long and you know i talked about this in one of the talks that there was lots of advice on why this was a bad idea you know it's too long it's too expensive it's too hard to plan it's not fair to your colleagues you're going to lose your work skills kids are going to be homesick you'll miss your friends it'll spoil the kids none of it came true especially was it too long if at the end of the three months somebody could have flicked a switch and said you can go for another three. All of us would have jumped on in a second. By the end of the three months, we were not ready to come home um, and not ready to just to get back into life again. We enjoyed it that much. Uh, that's amazing. You, you, know, you, you and I have talked a, a fair bit about some of the experiences that your kids had at, at that age in particular. I was wondering if you could, if you could talk about you know, selecting that age in particular with your kids as the as the destination in terms of the travel. But also, I'm curious, what have some of the maybe the longer legacies within your kids and within your family been since you guys have been back after that experience? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. There's the, the thoughts that travel will spoil your kids could not be more reverse. You can you couldn't flip it. I mean, we didn't stay in fancy five-star hotels this whole trip. Um, the kids got to see some of the world. And there is no better teacher than experience and travel, in my opinion. You know, there was so many stories and situations and conversations that me and my wife had with our children that we would never have had in our regular day-to-day -day lives. You know, we... We stayed with a, rural, a family in rural Thailand um, in the jungle, and you know, questions came from that. We visited a Buddhist temple in Bangkok, and then conversations around different religions of the world came up. Um, we went to a women's cooperative in Morocco, you know, and my daughter is, why do women need a cooperative? And the whole issues of women's rights and how the world works and, and biases, that came up. Um, you know, we we went, yeah, so many different places. We were in Greece during the whole, remember the whole Greek debt crisis? And, uh, yeah, right. And it all came to a head. And we were in the center, in the placa, in the central of Greece when CNN wow. was there. And there was fires and protests and everything else. But the conversations that I had with an 8 and a 10-year-old about money and debt and responsibilities and, and, and uh, finances... You know, you'd never have them listen and really appreciate it as much as you would if it wasn't immersed in a cultural experience. So, you know, I think it, it, it really gives kids soak up the details. You know, they try on cultures like they try on clothes. It builds courage, it builds resiliency, and I think it, it, it leads to smaller egos and bigger minds. 
Uh, it's so it's so well said, you know. And the 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 truth is too, it's it's important for our kids to see struggle, um, not just not just locally or regionally, but internationally. I, you know, it's pretty it's a relatively privileged upbringing in many ways to grow up as a surgeon's kid. And I think you know we've seen some of our colleagues do that exceptionally well, and some of them do poorly. But I I think the you know the the visual witnessing of of struggle in life can go a long way. Yeah, I think if you if you teach your kids, they can live without electronics, and and they can see different cultures. And you teach them grit and resiliency, then um, you, you take them a long way. Yeah, it's well said. What was it like when you came back at at the end of the three months, then and reintegrated into your job and your practice, uh, both clinically and surgically, and then uh, you know with your partners as well. You know it. It was a concern of mine. It was a it was a fear that you know you go away for three months or you do you have to warm back into things. But my first day back was um, a I, I remember it specifically. I kept the call. They kept the the trauma list because it was chaos. It was polytraumas and multiply injured and pelvis nystagmus. It took ten minutes to feel like I'd never left, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean in terms of just being back in the saddle. And uh, being able to look at the logistics of a complex case and sort things out and and um, have a plan going forward. So you know, I, I think if you're if you're out there and you're thinking about taking a sabbatical, three months is not going to do you in. I think we do this our whole lives. You spend a long time training for it. Um, you're not going to forget it all in three months. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's well said. But, you know, to, to be fair, that, that is a, certainly a founding fear of, of many folks, many surgeons, when they talk about taking time off. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting for sure. Is this something that you and uh, your wife or maybe your kids are going to do again? Absolutely. You know, I'd go tomorrow if I could, especially with this COVID and being tacked down. Um, yeah, yeah, we would. I mean, as the kids get older, lives get more complicated, friendships mm-hmm. become more important, kids are harder to... to they spend less time with you and more time with their friends and their, their perceived problems get bigger. And, uh, but yeah, we've, we've certainly talked about it and it is in the plan to do it again. Uh, that sounds amazing. Where, where do you guys think you're going to go? We talked about uh, just spending time in Southeast Asia and just sp- spending more time in, in a, a, a singular location to really get to know an area. We also talked about South America and, you know, tip to tip. Mm-hmm. Wow, that'd be phenomenal. Yeah, Southeast Asia is incredible. Cambodia yeah. in particular is always a place I love. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you know, you certainly, uh, with, without any intent, I, I get it. You, you sell this really well. And it's, it's something I think that's caused a lot of us that have seen you talk about it, cause for pause and, and, and try to think about maybe doing it. Let me ask you from, the outset how do you how do you plan it what, what sort of pieces of advice would you have both from the work side of things and more importantly from the trip side of things well i think the first question you have to answer is why 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 are you going to take three months off like is it because you want to travel is it because you want to you know set your retirement and look for somewhere to spend your retirement is travel something you enjoy is the unknown of the next day something that's stressful for you or something that's exciting for you? Who are you going to travel with? So, you know, taking time off doesn't have to be travel. It can be time off to, you know, hone a skill, hone your music skills, to read all the literature that you want to read, to, you know, to, 
to, to do something other passion. Uh, for me, travel was something our family really enjoys, and it seemed a very natural fit. But for other people, that may be music, literature, spiritual, martial arts, volunteer work, you know, who knows, ski trips, right? Um, so why are you doing it is the one, and make sure it's the right thing for you. Um, a supportive group, for sure. You know, it's not cheap to take three months off, and uh, not necessarily the cost of the travel, because you can do a trip like this fairly inexpensively, but you're not going to earn an income for three months. Um, so you need to be in a situation where um, that is not too stressful for you, or you're, you're not so stretched that those three months are not a plausible thing for you. Uh, which is a whole other podcast in itself, you know, finances and happiness and the fact that it's not a linear relationship. Um, so how do you plan it? Well, what we did is I, I just surfed the internet. I found a few key things that we wanted to do, you know, what was on my bucket list. Uh, interestingly, on my bucket list was Nepal and to do a hike to some of the base camps. But just as we were planning this, that earthquake hit Nepal. I don't know if you remember that a few years ago. So about two weeks before we were supposed to go, all that changed. So a few of the core trips that we had were the sailing trip in Croatia, the hiking trip in Morocco, uh, uh, a hotel in Santorini, and that was it. The rest we just kind of made up as we went. As we, went. Uh, we picked the flights and then we just filled it in day by day. And it is shocking how easy it is to fill a day that you don't have to have the whole thing planned. You just need a rough schedule and an open mind, and the rest will take care of itself. And just trust that uh, that it, it'll fall into place because uh, I can't say we had a boring day on the whole trip. And we certainly didn't plan every day. One thing I wanted to just zero in on again, Dr. Duffy, without belaboring the point, is is the why thing. And And there's sort of two parts to what I wanted to ask. One is you'd, you'd plan to do this, you know, it sounds like from the outset with your wife that you were going to do this and you had sort of had that vision in your mind. And obviously it sounds like you would you would do that again. But why do you think it's so important that surgeons kind of touch base and, and remind themselves about who they are as people outside of their personalities as surgeons? Because, you know, like I think for a lot of us, that is a big part of our, our personality. You know, that's that's a... Uh, very insightful question. Um, why is it important? You know, so I'm, I'm not saying a sabbatical is not necessarily important, but defining yourself outside of just a surgeon is extremely important. The we are very bad at ta as surgeons at taking care of ourselves. Um, that burnout is real. The the syndrome of burnout with physical, emotional exhaustion, cynicism, uh, and this feeling of lack of accomplishment and ineffectiveness affects a lot of us. 15% of surgeons at some point in their career will not be able to do their job because of alcohol dependency, mental health issues, or drug abuse. Uh, we've got uh, an extremely high rate of burnout, um, and it, it varies per surgical specialty, but most surgeon, most surgical groups have burnout rates between 30 and 40% and some are higher. You know, the concept that burnout is because you're weak or because you're not prepared and you shouldn't be a surgeon 
is couldn't be further from the truth. The paradox of burnout is that it's often the surgeons that are the hardest working, the most dedicated, the most empathetic, the most most wanting to see their patients do well that are most primed to burn out because they give everything to their practice. And unless you put your oxygen, your own oxygen mask on first and take care of yourself first, you're no good to anybody else. So as surgeons, we need to realize that burnout is real, that it's not a sign of weakness, that it can happen to anybody, and that we are horrible at diagnosing it. And, you know, the joke we see in orthopedics is, you know, the best way to treat a broken femur is to not break your femur. The best way to treat burnout is to not burn out. And to not burn out, you need to acknowledge it and you need to prevent it. And by preventing it, we need to know who we are. We need to see it coming. So taking care of ourselves means defining yourself outside of just being a surgeon. So if you had to write down five things to describe who you are, five of those should not involve medicine. We have to have other sides to our personality because it's healthy. It's, it's, it's healthy for longevity. At some point, you're going to retire. And you're, you're going to be the person who used to be a surgeon and you're still going to have a life of heavy. Um, your kids may be impressed that you're a surgeon, but they need you to be a dad and they need you to be a lot more than a surgeon. Um, so, you know, I, I think, um, a sabbatical is helpful in that regard, but it doesn't have to be a sabbatical. It's just, you need to find a passion or some other interests outside of medicine to help keep you healthy. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.